Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of the New Books Network podcast. I am James Nadell, your host for today, and I am thrilled to be joined by Dr. Federica Francesconi uh, to discuss her recent book, Invisible Enlighteners, The Jewish Merchants of Modena, From the Renaissance to the Emancipation, out with University of Pennsylvania Press last year. Dr. Francesconi is currently Associate Professor of History and Director of the Judaic Studies Program at the University of Albany. She has edited several publications in the past, including 2021's Jewish Women's History from Antiquity to the Present. Welcome, Dr. Francesconi. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you, James. Thank you for the kind invitation and welcome to you all. So I was really interested to get into uh, your book uh, because it is such a specific topic, such a specific community, the Jews of Modena. Uh, and it, I was wondering how you came to it uh, in the first place. What was your initial interest in this community? Uh, why were you interested in its merchants in particular? And what kinds of research questions did you come to the project with? Thank you, James. Thank you for for your question. And uh, um, Modena was originally the capital city of the Estedaci in northern Italy since 1598. And the community, the Jewish community there has been there and is still there and flourishing despite the decline of the numbers of, of every European Jewish community, except for France, perhaps. Um, but the idea, the most interesting aspect was the continuity of the presence of the Jewish community and its merchants. And specifically, I was working on a collection of Judaica at the time, um, some years ago, and I was working. I, I, I was interested in uh, studying uh, silver objects, uh, Judaica, specifically silver objects such as finials, rimonim, and crowns, atarot from the 17th to the 19th century. And the collection in Modena is extraordinary. While doing this kind of research, I retrieved the family, the Formigini family archive, uh, and the Formigini's are the, among the main protagonists of my book. So this archive uh, goes from the early 17th century to the end of the 19th century, and nobody ever studied it. I found it by accident in one of the main libraries, Modena, the Biblioteca Estense, and the archive was donated by an important editor, Angel actually by the widow of an important editor, editor, Angelo Fortunato Formigini, who after the promulgation, he was Jewish, he had a flourishing um, printing house in, in Modena and in Rome. And after the promulgation of the Russia law, the Russia laws against Jews in 1938, he committed suicide, jumping out of the, from the most famous tower in the city of Modena. Um, and that was an incredible experience for me, being in the archives and reading all of these folders with all of the personal and um, 
mercantile stories of these merchants who arrived from Ferrara in 1598. Ferrara is a quite known city for its uh, uh, beauty and the Renaissance culture. Um, it was the capital of the Estedaci, and then in 1598 was basically... Um, included and absorbed by the Papal State, and Modena became the capital. The Formigines were among some Jews who moved with the Dukes from Ferrara to Modena. Among the uh, uh, letters and the folders and the documentation that I found, there was also a wonderful correspondence that one of the protagonists, the protagonist of my last chapter in the book, Moise Formigini, was the first Italian Jew elected as a member of a parliament. It happened in 1796 under Napoleon. And he was corresponding to um, many members of the intelligentsia in uh, Europe, Jewish and non-Jewish, regarding the emancipation, the Jewish emancipation. So what I thought that my book would have been a book about the emancipation. So when Jews, instead of being invisible, thanks to Moise Formigini, were becoming visible. And then this discovery of the family archives of the Formigini was then followed by a wealth of unknown stories and unpublished sources in scattering so many archives in Italy, the United States, and Israel connected to Modena. And uh, I became more and more interested in understanding when the Jewish merchants were invisible. And uh, understanding basically what happened in terms of uh, the passage that brought them to the emancipation and then being leaders of Italian Jewry without any sudden transformation or any ch dramatic challenges that somewhere brought to, for example, conversions. Mm. Um, so basically what happened in terms of um, um, these merchants. So they were... Um, mm, and why they were invisible. Basically, their activities were everywhere in the city of Modena. They were, Jews were at the la, um, upper middle class, lower social class. They were all uh, participating in the city of life, book dealers, silversmith printers, silk weavers. What happened, what was particular there is that even if their activities were everywhere and they were really uh, the backbone of the commercial um, um, life of the city of Modena and the state at large, very rarely they were mentioned in the sources. They were ghettoized in the 1638 and uh, um, all had to live in this small ghetto at the center of the city. So Invisible Enlighteners, in a way, tells the social and political history of the modernist Jewish merchants. The Jewish merchants, because they were the leaders, they were those who emerged from the documentation and they had a lot of continuity. And because of their involvement, not, not only in the commercial life, but also in the secular and, the, and, and um, in the cultural and the religious production, they were more interesting to me to penetrate this kind of process that happened in the 17th and 18th century and was a sort of 
process of acculturation and so, sorry, a process of social cultural transformation and legal mm. and political integration. Mm. Um, what happened is that I cons- so basically I follow their uh, life from the uh, settlements in the city, the ghettoization, the emancipation, and I explore why, by the means by which they establish a network of upper-middle-class Jewish families and maintain their roles as community leaders through business, interfamilial alliances, and the production, as I mentioned, of religious and secular culture over the course of more than two centuries. So I consider the election of Modena as a capital of the Estedach in 1598 as my starting point, and then I end with the establishment in 1796 of the Cispadena Republic under Napoleon and the beginning of the so-called first Italian Jewish emancipation. Yeah, it's really fascinating, this uh, metaphor that um, comes up time and time and again in the book of a simultaneous invisibility and visibility that you're tracking all the way across three centuries of time. It reminds me of uh, how you discuss the ghetto itself in uh, in the Italian peninsula as at once um, made visible uh, uh, an attempt to circumscribe and define uh, a Jewish space in the city uh, and a, a Jewish uh, limited limitation restriction in the city, and yet uh, also an a uh, an attempt to uh, make uh, Jews invisible in the city as well. Uh, a there's uh, a term you use in the book, and there's a prophylactic quality uh, to the ghetto itself which I thought was a very evocative term. Um, I was wondering, could you talk a little bit about uh, the Modena ghetto uh, and how it formed um, and how it compares to other uh, spaces of the kind in Italy and throughout Europe uh, during the early modern period? Yeah, uh, James, thank you so much for bringing me to the opportunity also to make, in a way, connections with uh, other realities, contemporaneous realities in Italy and in Europe or the Mediterranean. One of the main aspects I would say that, in fact, as you, as your question in a way suggests, this is not just is not just a, a particular case. So what I see here is also a sort of backbone of a, what can be a European Jewish history of the early modern period, and. Uh, in this kind of uh, pre-ghetto and then ghettoization of the Jewish merchants, what is interesting is that the social cultural transformation basically brought, gave rise to unique forms of Renaissance culture, early modern female agency, and the Enlightenment practice that stand out within the Italian and European context for its importance. And these three elements, for sure, had a particular so Renaissance culture, early modern female agency, and the Enlightenment practice in the ghetto itself. So what I will say here is that um, all the Italian ghettos were built with the idea of isolate Jews and make them, in a way, a 
invisible from um, um, in the make their presence invisible on the one hand, but the ghetto visible as a proof of we isolate the Christian polluters of the of the of, um, um, of our societies. But yet there were often issues of negotiations. And for example, the the uh, creation of the first ghetto in Venice was an attempt to establish a compromise between the religious teachings of the Catholic states and is its socioeconomic needs. The ghetto in Rome established in 1555 was a ghetto that actually was more aimed at isolation and conversion of Jews. Um, nevertheless, um, Modena shows that uh, despite these attempts of isolation and confinement, there was always a sort of complex, ongoing process of cultural and social and legal negotiations. So in Modena and elsewhere, ghettos were conceived to as enclosures to isolate Jews and keep them out of view. But despite their condition that they had to deal with, Jews in any case gave a rise to societies and neighborhoods that were socially, culturally, religiously, and ethnically one of the most fluid enclaves of the early modern world. And that is for sure an aspect of Modena. The characteristic about Jews in Modena, and there was always in the, the ghetto is at, was, and the, the compound in part is still at the center of the city. There is a beautiful uh, emancipation style synagogue now at the center, built in 1872. And what is, so think about, so this, and, and Jews were, the majority of Jews were reciting in this area at the center of the city between the main church and the city hall and the ducal palace since the, the 15th century. And, and still nowadays, the, the core of Jewish life is there. So there is a, really a continuity and different layers of visibility and invisibilities. Surely what we see in Modena is that this sort of utilitarian relationship between the Jews and the Dukes and the fact that sometimes the dukes were um, negotiating themselves, their roles with the different bodies in the society. And in a way, ghettoizing Jews was a way to uh, make agreements with the, with the local churches, with the local merchants, etc. But at the same time, what we see is that Jews are exiled internally, Likewise, prostitutes and sick and nuns, because also women could be dangerous in a post, in a counter-reformation period. But at the same time, what we see is that there is no, there is nothing more than this kind of violent rhetoric as Jews like dogs that we can see in Rome, for example. And we don't have permanent expulsion in the Estedaci, and we have in different cities the establishment of the ghettos, but also in villages, small, commun small um, communities were allowed to live without ghettoization. Surely, 
one characteristic about the ghetto in Modena and the ghetto life was that Jews in Modena were allowed to enroll in every any guild in the city, and that is was a particular also in the Italian context, not only in the European context, and that allowed them to enter into the life, into the commercial and cultural life. They became the ducal bookseller, the ducal silversmith, the ducal silk entrepreneur to 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 have a real influence, not only in the economic but also in the cultural life of the of the city. Yeah, it's, it was so uh, clear uh, in your book the extent to which these, uh, you know, satellites of uh, Jewish communal life in uh, Italian ghettos, but particularly the one in Modena that you focus on, um, how they could form a life unto their own uh, while also being connected to uh, broader society uh, in the city. You specifically uh, talk about throughout the book a sort of um, overlap between uh, the domestic spaces of the ghettos, the houses, uh, the family homes. Uh, the families families are very you know important uh, to your book as you follow uh, your protagonists. Uh, so there's an overlap between their domestic spaces and then the public civil spaces of uh, the ghetto itself uh, that host uh, the Jewish community uh, more broadly. Um, can you describe uh, what you mean by this uh, sort of confluence of civil society and domestic space? And how did it, how and why did it emerge in uh, Modena. Thank you. Uh, thank you, James, for this question. So on the one hand, uh, you're absolutely right. For me, the house and the households are crucial in understanding these Jewish merchants who were living for centuries and they were even living in the same centuries, in, 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 in the same house for centuries. Mm. And what, what I see in a way, um, how um, uh, merchants like the Modenas, the Sanguinettis, and the Formiginis, uh, in a way, um, conceived and shaped the household as a site where public and private, religious and profane, economy and welfare, work and leisure were entangled. So their buildings hosted family houses, synagogues, libraries, confraternities, and shops. So, for example, if you look at other contexts, the synagogue sometimes start in the house of a merchant, but then it becomes a, a, a building and an institution by itself. Here, all the synagogues remain within the, um, the Jewish home of the merchants. And um, what that is one aspect that um, bring also endogamy, kinship, commercial alliances, and culture and religious production together. So there was a sort of here a new the emergence of new Jewish leadership that coincided also with the community path from the late Renaissance to modernity, um, and the first 
decades of the 17th century were crucial for the emergence of these families and also um, how these families aggregated and the intensification of, of ties between Jewish and Christian society, society and institutions. So what I think is also interesting here regarding what you mentioned in terms of the civil society that emerges. So if, if you look at the period I analyze in my book that I found central, the 17th and 18th century, where all of these Jewish merchants were there, I see also their administration of the ghetto as a sort of expanded family, as a, a sort of laboratory for governmental skills that has been also crucial for maintaining their leadership throughout centuries and was not impermeable because, for example, the Formigines arrived, uh, emerged a little bit later in the 1630s, 1640s, and, and then they became among the leaders. But what I see here is that sometimes if you look at the the end of the 16th century and the 17th century, through the 18th century, scholars don't agree. For example, uh, some consider that there was a, a period of decline. Others, like Jonathan Israel, they see a most profound, a perversive, and pervasive impact on, of Jewish merchants on Western Europe in both the cultural and economic sphere. What I see here, I don't see... Um, I think that here the case of Modena does not completely conform to either a model of integration or that exclusion for the 17th and 18th century. What I see here is exactly what you described. So the emergence of, of a civil society out of the private sphere of family networks. For example, the Jewish society played an important role in the wider new Jewish world, whereas the Christian nobility in Modena was weak and there, there was not a middle class the more influential Jewish families in the decades immediately before the institution of the ghetto succeeded in creating through opportune matrimonial alliances, commercial association, a close-knit Jewish mercantile community. And also, compared to other mercantile societies in Europe, this kind of civil society that really evolved in a sort of unique laboratory for governmental skills was also allowed by the fact that Jews arrived and stay for centuries. So we don't have the back and forth of Jewish network of Sephardic and Portuguese merchants that we can see. Here, there is a real investment in the city. On the other side, these merchants never reached the big roots that we can see in Jews from Livorno, for example, or from Amsterdam. Their mercantilism was all, always a mercantilism in micro. What do you mean by that of, of, of a, a, in terms of scale or uh, what makes the mercantilism micro in this case? I think so on the one hand they were confined in a small in a in, they were confined in a small state it was part an appendix I'll say of the empire but at the same time was limited um the absolutism of the estes was also limited in a comparing to other societies. So we see an incredible flourishing of economic commercial activities in the city, but we don't see the big roots of 
commercial participation outside of the Italian peninsula. Just to be clear, these Jewish merchants were were in touch with, for example, librarians in Frankfurt, or uh, they were acquiring uh, corals, silver objects uh, in the main markets, but the core of their uh, mercantile activities was more the Italian peninsula than uh, the entire early modern world. Um, I don't know, for example, for my new project, now I'm studying Jews, Christians, and Muslims under the Jewish roof in Venice, and I see Jewish merchants going from... Constantinople to Egypt to India and then to Venice. There is not this part. But what is interesting though is that exactly because this, the society was stable, just to go back to your point on the civil society, what you see is also a society that has, because it's stable, doesn't move, is also an elite that needs to negotiate with modernity and non-modernity. So, for example, a point that I, I make in, in my book was in showing this kind of governmental skills in the case of Jewish servants who face seduction, exploitation, and pregnancy under the Jewish roof in 18th century, in the 18th century. So, here, what happened compared to what happened elsewhere in Italy? and in Europe, eh, considering both Jewish and Christian society, here is that we know that that, um, um, at times uh, the lives of uh, Jewish servants were were basically um, shaped dramatically by uh, pregnancy and exploitation and uh, sexual components in their relationship with their masters or co-workers. What happened in Modena, and what is the danger here? The danger is that uh, these elements of public pregnancy, so when when a a sexual component, illicit sex, comes up as a problem, when there is a pregnancy, that makes public the problem. So while, for example, you can see a wonderful article by Elisha Karlebach on similar cases at the same time in Altona, Jewish servants were considered guilty and expelled immediately. Here, there is the idea of contain the potential destabilizing behaviors within the Jewish society and containing also the problems that you could have had if these women were expelled. For example, conversion to Christianity or internally destabilizing the orders of the families and the society. So how the Jewish leaders and the rabbis here acted was basically obliging the seducers to marry the girls or to support them as well as their illegitimate children. So the idea was uh, you are already married, you cannot marry the girl, but you can adopt the child as your own and the, and the women will have uh, a, an opportunity with the dowry that you provide to have a second chance of reintegration or integration within their, um, uh, within their uh, illegitimate children. Mm-hmm. And that's that's a good uh, transition to talk a little bit about uh, a central um, approach that you take in the book to gender. How did the kind of laboratory setting that you're describing of governmental practice affect uh, how uh, the Jewish community of Modena understood gender, um, both 
uh, from the perspective of uh, communal leaders, uh, the merchants you've been discussing, as well as women themselves? Um, um, I tell you what basically were the consideration that I started with. I think that uh, what I what I noted, so first of all, a discovery. In 1735, Jewish women in Modena established a female confraternity, um, the Sohed Kolim, that was um, basically um, the duties were to take care of all Jewish women in the ghetto, poor and wealth, and uh, the members of this confraternity were the wives and uh, the daughters of the Jewish merchants who made them, in a way, silent and less involved than elsewhere in Italy in the business uh, administration of the family affairs. So what I've I noted there and what I see as a construction of gender, and again, there are so many elements that in Modena are um, together that you can find in so many other uh, in, individually you can find in so many other Italian and European communities. But for me, what was interesting here is that I what as I so these women basically were excluded from the business of their families. But through the confraternities, they started to invest money. They started to have rituals by themselves. So they reconfigured their own isolation in a house that was the house of a, a, the, the daughter and the wife of, a, a, her name was Miriam Rovigo. The Rovigos were Sabbatian. Abraham Rovigo was the leader of the Sabbatian movement. So she had her own confraternity established nearby in the, on the same floor where the Sabbatian confraternities were, were. So basically what we have, they, how they were excluded individually in the community, they became more and more active and they didn't do and hear the slow process without, without sudden transformation. So in the community, in their own confraternity, they, with their own confraternity, they presented themselves as quite conservative, not dangerous, because they were proposing a Jewish confraternity for with philanthropic activities. But then what they did was uh, uh, challenging their role. They all they were working in the confraternity outside the house for assisting these women, mm, serving a sort of as a gynecologist as well, hiring other women and uh, um, basically not, transforming but not challenging the rabbinical establishment. And on the other side, what was means was important also looking looking at the um, 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 male establishment. So I think that often in the past, some scholarship assume okay, rabbis were bad and rabbis were conservative and lay leaders as well. For me, what was very interesting is to see that in the moment in the 17th century, when the, these Jewish merchants and other elites as well in Italy take control of these societies. The, one of the consequences is, in a way, attempt to confine women in the domestic sphere. But in why, why they were doing so, they were doing this 
operation with sophistication. So, for example, there is this famous Aron Berechia Modena rabbi in Modena and the Kabbalist who shaped new funerary customs and Kabbalistic rituals, particularly he was in Modena, he published in Italy, he lived in Modena all his life, but his role was extremely influential in Central and Eastern Europe, in Prague, for example. But what he did, he imagined Jewish women's lives in the domestic sphere, but he articulated the Jewish female space with sophistication. For example, new rituals for the women, new prayers in Hebrew, and uh, um, from original written in Yiddish, uh, prayers to the matriarchs, for example, attempts of interfering in the domestic sphere. So women, for example, in Italy and elsewhere in Jewish communities really liked holding a Torah scroll during the childbirth. He tried to impose the rituals instead of holding a Torah scroll, a candle. candle. So there is and same thing for a sort of confinement of better readings for women. But then the reality doesn't conform often with what these rabbis wanted. So women, instead of reading um, 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 Talmudic translations or um, Book of Customs, they were often reading the Decameron and the Divina Commedia or Boccaccio as well. And they didn't stop um, holding their... um, their Torah scroll, but they embraced the prayers that Aron Berechia Modena wrote for them with the invocation of the matriarchs. So I see, in a way, the construction of gender in this way. The, The gender is constructed in the house, in terms of the female roles, but at the same time, there is a way to configure it, to reimagine women that is done with sophistication. On the other side, from the house, new things started, such as this confraternity that I, I um, mentioned at the beginning. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's so, it's so interesting to hear that, you know, exclusion in a specific way led to participation through other avenues that... Exactly, that, exactly yeah. as you describe it. Yeah, and that that mirrors a lot of your discussion of the Jewish community uh, writ large, that segregation to the ghetto uh, may have attempted to um, uh, downplay the uh, participation of these Jewish merchants in broader uh, Modenese life, uh, but... uh, these uh, characters found other avenues uh, in which to continue uh, their participation, uh, particularly the cultural production that you mentioned. Uh, there's a really fascinating uh, section of the book about uh, um, book uh, sellers uh, and the construction of uh, the first library in, in Modena. Could, could you describe um, those connections? Uh, and maybe how how they connect uh, both exclusion and participation at the same time. Oh yeah, thank you, James. Thank you. This is a wonderful uh, a wonderful question. Um, 
One, I think that one of the mm, mm, interesting aspects of the life of the Jewish merchants I have discovered is, and here again, using so many sources from the Inquisition, treatises, um, um, inventories in the houses, and um, and um, as you mentioned, here we have a real real vibrant life. So these are Omberichia Modena had one of the most important Kabbalistic centers in Europe and in the Mediterranean is in his house. Abram Rovigo had one of the most important um, vital centers of Sabbatean's life, even after the conversion of Shabbatai Tzvi. Um, so what, but what, I, and all of them were also merchants and members of the family I was interested in, but they were both merchants and published uh, authors. What for me was also interesting is looking at the culture of the Jewish merchants as a whole. And uh, um, that is a, a, usually a difficult word to penetrate because usually merchants don't leave written sources, etc. So looking, for example, the example that you mentioned was a, is a tactic typical case of microhistory in a way, because I found various documents of this Moise Modena, who was the father of Aron Berechia, who in 1600 was tried multiple times by the Inquisition for owning prohibited, non-censored, actually Italian and Latin books. What happened, though, is that for circumstances, he had a certain point to show all of his library, and you have an incredible opening in terms of um, what is the culture of a, a, a cultured Jew um, at the beginning of the 17th century. So it was not just having a culture um, for authors, for published authors, but a book, books, uh, Talmudic treatises, Hebrew Bible, Midrash, um, um, medicine, um, um, philosophical treatises, liber, um, Italian and Latin, Latin literature. So it really... In, 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 in books of poetry, books of Italian Latin poetry, um, prohibited book of Christian Kabbalists. So there is really a plethora of sources that, for example, a, a, an important cultural and intellectual historian, David Rudenon, was look, when he was looking at the, the cultural formation of Jewish authors in early modern Italy, was looking at that was a culture that was based primarily on disciplines such as the Kabbalah, rhetoric, historiography, scholastic, neoplatonic, philosophy, magic, medicine, the sciences, and music. So what this source in particular, and then I found other libraries and I reconstructed many libraries of Jewish merchants in Modena, was actually, this was not with this idea that Ruderman um, defined as an open book, was not only proper of the intellectuals, but was also shared by teachers, rabbis, merchants, bankers, both men and women. So what I, regarding what you just mentioned very wisely, this interplay between participation and exclusion, I came up with this idea of cultural hybridization, that meaning in a way a not acculturation in the same classic term where 
there is the idea that minorities acculturating and embracing the culture of the majority is a sort of Ascala remnant, Ascala attitude remnant. Uh, but this the idea of uh, um, um, a cultural process where Jews participated in, but at the same time did not submit themselves to a cultural colonization. So that could be sometimes the problem in bringing hybridization there. So here, we, in their eyes, Italian and Hebrew cultures were equal, and agency and intention were often included in this process of in, including all of these kind of different sources, looking at, again, Italian and Latin on the one hand and Hebrew culture on the others. On the other side, what happened here is that there is this, what I call also an intimate cultural communion between Jews and Christians at so many levels, but the theological boundaries were very neat. So this is... Uh, what in a way we see Jewish merchants, both men and women together with rabbis and Jewish scholars, they were shaping the cultural, this cultural world without traumatic contrast nor tensions. But the main thing is that I can be interested in the culture of my Christian neighbors, like for example, the example the case of Baroque poetry, I brought a certain point in order to emphasize the importance of secular PU team in a synagogue. But at the same time, they, I'm not interested in theological boundaries, in, in, a, in basically blurring those boundaries. So theological borders have been always neat. Mm. And uh, but you see, um, nonetheless, a sort of some uh, cultural transference. So there's absolutely, the yeah. There's the religious, uh, you know, uh, communitarian uh, strict boundaries, and yet, as as you point out, um, uh, a, a cultural um, interplay. Um, absolutely, absolutely. Mm-hmm. Cool, and and. Uh, it's so fascinating to hear you talk about this project as a whole because it it includes so many different approaches that uh, have become common in Jewish historiography but are often relegated to individual monographs. This is at once an intellectual history, a socioeconomic history, a, some a religious a, a history of religious practices and a cultural history. I was wondering uh, if you had a sense of that breadth as you entered the project and how you managed to uh, organize uh, all of these different um, approaches to Jewish history uh, that uh, you know have um, that are particularly um, discussed. Uh, regarding the transformations of the early modern period, how you organized them all uh, into a coherent uh, story and narrative. Suffering a lot. A lot <laughs> yeah, of work. I imagine. <laughs> I imagine. So, um, you know, in, in a way, what I, I always thought is when I was starting uh, working was uh, that I always admire so many scholars in 
let's say, social among social historians who are working on early modern Italy, not necessarily on Jews and intellectual Jewish uh, and intellectual and cultural historians who work on um, specifically on Jews in Italy uh, or Jews in the, in the early modern Mediterranean. And so, but what I've, I've seen often, and that is was one of the main issues when I started my dissertation, and then um, that was on Boys of Formigian, and then the book. So I really did. I, I I wanted to combine the best approaches of the two traditions, American and Israeli scholars, often privilege Hebrew sources and concentrate on cultural and intellectual histories, while uh, I have these wonderful Italian historians, such as Carlo Ginsburg, Guido Ruggero, who bring focus on societies, but because they don't know Hebrew, they don't uh, go too much into the analysis of the Jewish societies. So I was really trying to bring through sources and reading Italian, Latin, and Hebrew sources. So through the sources, going through this kind of attempt of comp- um, um, using both intellectual and cultural history on the one hand and social history on the other. I am a social historian. And uh, um, that was uh, one uh, one aspect. Another thing I think is also was uh, um, doing with so many sources and themes, as you mentioned, I think that was also very helpful to have the sources leading my research. So, for example, instead of having the, the book on the early 19th century, the book is of the 17th and 18th century. But on the other, also, I think that sometimes we conceive the, the fact that comparative, and global, comparative history and global perspective should come after we studied all the sources and all everything on a topic. What I found very useful is think about reading my sources while doing comparative and global history at the same time. So some elements, for example, on the um, um, Jewish female culture that uh, emerged in the early modern period or the approach to material, material culture in the global renaissance in Venice and India were useful to understand for me some of my sources in terms of the material culture of the Jewish families in Modena. Great. Well, it's an excellent uh, uh, monograph and I'm so excited that people are going to uh, be able to read it and get a sense of all of those different approaches uh, that, that you bring to the table. Thank you so much, uh, Professor, uh, for joining us. And uh, if you uh, would like to uh, purchase Invisible Enlighteners, uh, you can find uh, information for that on the University of Pennsylvania Press website. Um, And uh, we'll see you next time. Thank you.